Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Well, hello and welcome back to WebRush. Here we are with our 175th episode. Ward, you've been here for nearly every single one of them. I'm sure you must remember all of them, right? Intimately. Intimately, I can recall them like they were yesterday. Just like yesterday, like the back of your Just hand, like, right? Uh, uh, no. And nor have I been here for all of them. In fact, today's guest, I missed I missed his previous appearance. Well, and that's what that's what's fun about today. T- today is a sequel show. Um, so we, we get to follow up on some technology that was often referenced. And while we were talking about we do, we were just like, we have to have this guy come back. Not and SQL. Talk about- you don't mean sequel. You don't mean that kind of sequel. Dang it. I was. Okay, now. Let's go back to the show. No, you're right. It wasn't SQL. It was something else. I think it was Sculpt. That's what it was. So we're, we're bringing back Meredith, and uh, he's here to talk to us about Sculpt. So really quick, if you don't know, Meredith Luff is the founder of Anvil, the platform for developing web apps with only Python, and the maintainer of Sculpt, a project for running Python in the web browser. So Meredith, welcome back. Hello, it is great to be back. I had great fun last time. I'm sure I'll have great fun this time. Absolutely. So to, to kind of reorient people who may not have caught the first show, you know, somebody in the room maybe, or others who, you know, maybe it's just not totally fresh in their mind, like give us the running start. How did we get to the point where we were talking about Sculpt? And why would anybody do that? That's, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Last time uh, you uh, graciously had me on, we were talking about Anvil, which is uh, a platform for building web applications entirely in Python. So the idea is that instead of having to know HTML and CSS and JavaScript and Python and SQL and Bootstrap and React and Redux and your uh, Webpack and all of this huge chain of uh, web build tools, Instead, we built a tool where all you need is Python. So a proper, like, yeah, drag and drop to design design your user interface, write your application in Python, both the server side and the stuff that runs in your browser, and then deploy right away. And the idea was to sort of shorten the, the journey from, hey, being able to program anything at all to being able to build and deploy a real web app. And of course, in the process of describing a system like this, uh, there was a bit of a sort of record scratch moment and Craig went, wait, what, <laughs> Python in, in the browser? That, that, that did, did what? And uh, the answer is, of course, Sculpt, which is an open source Python to JavaScript compiler uh, that Anvil and many other projects use uh, to allow you to write Python that will run in your web browser. And we reckon that this would be enough fun to uh, have me back and talk about it again. And I'm looking forward to doing so. And, yeah, I mean, it's just, that's my mind-blowing. Uh, actually, the whole thing is mind-blowing for me because uh, it, more so actually than the translation to uh, JavaScript is how do you... I know this must have been covered in the other show, but how in the world am I able to write a web front end where I have no idea about how HTML and CSS 
work. Much as I would like to not know anything about them, I am. Uh, uh, yes. Sparing I, people I, cursed knowledge is a major design goal of Anvil. Yeah. How? I, I, so uh, refresh this. How in the world do you avoid HTML yeah. and CSS? All right. So, so uh, if you go to anvil.works, uh, you hit the build button, you will land in an online editor. And it's a little bit like, uh, if you recall, like Visual Basic or Delphi from back in the day. So you've got a, there's actually a UI toolkit that's, you know, a Python UI toolkit that we have built uh, that is, in fact, rendering in a web browser. And there's a drag and drop designer you can use to build your user interfaces in this editor. And then you switch the tab from design to code. And now you're editing the Python class that corresponds to the uh, to the chunk of user interface you've just built. And so you can do something like drag and drop a button onto the page and you know double click it. And then you'll land in the Python code that runs in the browser when that button gets clicked. All the things that you've dragged and dropped onto your page are represented as Python objects with this user interface toolkit. So if you want to get the text out of a text box, you don't go and like query through the HTML DOM. You go self.textbox1.text, and they're available as properties on a Python object. So it's very much like the desktop UI paradigm, and that means that you can build these user interface apps entirely in Python. And of course, the server side is also in Python, so you can create a module that's on the server. You can make functions there that you can call. So again, you don't have to mash everything into JSON and uh, send it over like a REST request. You can just define a function, tag it with a decorator, and say, hey, I can call this from the front end, and then call that function from the code that's running when your button's clicked. So you can build the server side. You can build the client side. There's a built-in database. You can build your user interface. Obviously, you can build UI you know, programmatically, because it's it's just a UI toolkit. You just construct some Python objects and, you know, uh, self.add component, new button or whatever. Uh, and by doing that, we allow you to create a web application, a proper full-stack web application that does real things with real code throughout without necessarily having to know five different programming languages just to get off the starting blocks. So, John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid, component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps. One of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? Oh, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, we're a consulting company. And, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue. But they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at, at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework Data Grid makes sense to you. Please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. Well, from one question spring many, and I'm, I have all these things about styling and how the API calls work that you just mentioned. This one, there's a whole there's a whole podcast episode about them. You can go. We talked all about it. It was great fun. Yes, I'm sorry I missed that. Now, uh, so uh, bracketing all of that, uh, we have Sculpt. Just doing, all right, what is it? All right, so Sculpt is 
a Python to JavaScript compiler. So that, that is the essential technology to running something in Python in the browser, because your browser only really understands JavaScript well, or, or WebAssembly. But let's leave that aside for a moment. We'll get back to it. Uh, so what Sculpt is, is it's a JavaScript library that you can load in a string of Python source code to, and it will spit out a bunch of really gnarly JavaScript source code that has the same sort of behavior as the Python code you just put in. Uh, and it's, of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You can, in fact, feed it a whole sort of virtual file system of source, of source and it can you know, import modules, do all the normal things you expect from a Python interpreter. And this is obviously on its own of limited utility, but you can plug it into a whole bunch of different projects, and suddenly you can build front-end projects that can be scriptable with Python. So uh, this is the kind of thing that we expect from like TypeScript, which translates into JavaScript. It's a short, that's a shorter leap. Uh, and before that, and my memory being what it is, um, there was a competitor uh, to this that was doing the job of translating into uh, JavaScript from something else. And CoffeeScript? Chow? Huh? Yeah, yeah. Co well, CoffeeScript was another, but there was, uh, oh, that was really close. Uh, but there was something else. But And the problem was all uh, part of the problem, so I'm going to put it to you, is that you ended up with impenetrable JavaScript. Now, I can tell you that I can actually read the JavaScript that comes out of TypeScript 90% of the time. Uh, so it's it, they do a marvelous job of kind of preserving the semantics. But for a Python person, how do they survive? So yeah, I mean, I think this is a this is a good answer. I think the way to think about it here is that the JavaScript emitted by Sculpt is is a little bit more like the machine code or like the object code you'll get if you're compiling a Java or .NET program, which is to say that like it is technically possible to you know put your snorkel <laughs> on, dive in, and work out what's going on underneath. Uh, but you probably don't want to. You probably want to, you know, do your debugging sort of in the Python world there. And it's so it's meant to be a black you know, box, right? You, you feed this stuff in, and then you go with what comes out. In much the same way as the JavaScript interpreter built into your browser is a black box, or the Python interpreter you're running your, you know, server side Django app on is a black mm -hmm. box. This is, you know fairly common in programs. All right, but I'm going to push a little harder on this one because one of the things that I'm doing all the time in my apps is I am opening the browser console and trying to set breakpoints that are in my source code uh, so I can see what the heck is going on because it's not doing what I thought it was going to do. Uh, now, with source map, I can uh, do that quite close to where I started. So does your does, does Sculpt have a kind of source map thing that helps me debug in? So, yeah, so it could actually emit source maps. Um, what Sculpt does instead, actually, is uh, it has a... Uh, framework uh, called Suspensions, which is actually used, it was originally written, actually, I originally wrote it, uh, for uh, for dealing with uh, blocking operations. So, and again, we can get onto this in a moment, but um, Sculpt is used in a bunch of environments where you really want to be friendly to how an idiomatic Python program or a beginner Python programmer thinks. And so you have lots of opportunities to do blocking operations. And like blocking operations in JavaScript, if you're going away to the server and getting some, some data, for example, they're kind of painful. You need to either 
you need to understand uh, callbacks, which is like straight into, you know, closures and anonymous functions and so on. Or you need to understand promises, which is also kind of closures and anonymous uh, functions, but also like the chaining behavior of promises and reasoning about that and what's going to execute when. Or you use async await, which is mercifully now supported by all major browsers, but that wasn't always the case. You use async await, and then you have the uh, the problem uh, related in the famous essay, what color is your function, where you have to keep track of which functions are async, which ones aren't, and you will very li- very rapidly, the moment you slip up, you'll realize that actually an async function returns a promise, and then you have to understand what promises anyway. So like, if you're doing blocking operations in JavaScript, there's a lot you have to understand to get off the starting blocks. And so a design goal with, goal with Sculpt was that you shouldn't have to understand all of that to be able to build your first like program that happens to do I.O. And so Sculpt's compiler actually contains a sort of automatic uh, transformation of the same sort of thing that like tra- Babel would have done with async await if you're compiling down to you know, ES5 for old Internet Explorer or something. Um, where you can, uh, if something blocks, then you can unwind the stack and sort of save at every point in the call stack, save your local variable state, save where you were in the function, and then return some uh, suspension as the object we call it, uh, that wraps up that execution state. And then the calling function will also save its local, save its temporaries, return uh, suspension, and so on. And so you can wrap up and unwrap the call stack pretty straightforwardly. And once you have this machinery, then actually... uh, you can build an interactive debugger because an interactive debugger is just a uh, just a means of uh, making the uh, uh, making the interpreter stop at a certain point and unwind all of its uh, wind up all of its call stack uh, into you know an inspectable object. So actually, if you check out the Sculpt repository on GitHub, oh, I should probably give the uh, the website here sculpt.org. That's S-K-U-L-P-T.org. And there's a link to the GitHub there. Uh, you'll see there's actually a built-in prototype uh, interactive debugger. So the answer is that you can do interactive debugging in Sculpt, but it doesn't rely on the browser uh, dev tools, which, again, that brings you into all of the HTML JavaScript world that you were trying to protect you from. Um, it doesn't use source maps because, as anybody who worked with them for long enough knows, the fidelity of source maps leaves a fair bit to be desired. And what that means is that you know they will disappear out from underneath you or start giving you actively wrong answers uh, very early on, and that's not actually helpful. Uh, so the answer is actually that, that to maintain the back black box and provide a better debugging interface on top of it that's sort of Python native that speaks to the state of the Python program you're running, not the underlying JavaScript that's implementing it. So that's fascinating. Uh, and I, I, I'd love to, to see that when I have a moment. Uh, um, the also, But that also suggests that uh, I am able to see my source code in some fashion within your debugger, right? So, so, so I can sort of say, I, this is, I can find something I recognize. I'm not in some suspension object only, but I can actually see something. I'm seeing the code I wrote. So uh, in its default mode of operation, um, Sculpt actually compiles and runs in the browser because for a lot of the applications that Sculpt's used for, that's actually, uh, that's actually beneficial. So Sculpt, I mean, had its genesis as a... Uh, Fun project, but his, his main uses now of the, of the projects that use Sculpt, I'd say most of them are 
uh, teaching based at some point. So you've got projects like Code Sculptor, which is an interactive um, uh, interactive programming environment. You've got Trinket. If you've ever seen one of those, if you have a kid learning programming, you've probably run across Trinket at some point, which is again it's an in browser graphical environment. Uh, you know, teaching people basic logic, doing you know logo turtle style stuff, all in the browser. Uh, there's a really great game called Code Combat, uh, which is slightly more explicitly gamified, where you can, you know, you have sort of some like adventure dungeon crawler style problem to solve, and you write code to, you know, t- t- to cause your adventurer to to succeed. Uh, and again, that all happens. The Python version of that uses Sculpt, and it all happens in your browser. And so it's a positive advantage that. You are writing the code; it's compiling and running in your browser, rather than you know it necessarily being an ahead of time compilation step. So, yeah, having access to the source code, you know, in a debugging environment, obviously that's what you need. Um, but Sculpt is is built to be friendly to the use case where you are interactively executing Python code in the browser. So sometimes we talk about this inner loop of a developer where they load up their IDE, they do their thing, they set a breakpoint, they run. So you're talking about all of this happening in the browser when it comes to hitting a breakpoint, inspecting what's happening, and then changing your code. Like, can I do that in Visual Studio Code or something else? Or what does that look like? So, oh, I mean, again, this is, uh, Sculpt is the compiler here. So you're, you're, really asking how you're deploying Sculpt. Uh, maybe. Maybe I'm not understanding even the question I'm asking, but I'm saying like, so I'm thinking of deployment as it's done and I'm going to deploy it. But when I'm developing it, I've set a breakpoint and I'm trying to do that interactive debugging. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's, yeah, like you, you would, I think you'd need to rebuild. I say, this is the Sculpt uh, interactive debugger is, uh, uh, is still an experimental thing. Um, I'm ashamed to say, as of the time of recording, <clears throat> Uh, we do not have an interactive debugger deployed as part of Anvil. <clears throat> Watch this space. <clears throat> uh, so you, you like there is space for some of that, but I think yeah, I think given the architecture we have, you would probably you know, you'd be hard pressed to sort of unroll a stack from one um, uh, from one compilation into another compilation. It's a little bit too specific. So I don't think you could do like the, the edit continue stuff that like. I've I've heard Visual Studio can do this. I've never managed to make it work. The last language I could I've used where that was possible was like QBasic back in the '90s, and I loved it so much. So uh, yeah, <laughs> good theoretical uh, one to have, but uh, I don't think Sculpt supports it. Uh, anyway, I, I feel like we're going a little bit down a rabbit hole with the debugger stuff here um, because that that is like a consequence of uh, one design decision made in uh, made in Sculpt, uh, but there's there's actually quite a lot we could talk about about sort of the design and you know sculpt is not the only way you can run uh, python in the web browser and uh, if you like we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the alternative approaches Different and options. sort of their yeah. trade-offs yeah yeah i had you had brought up WebAssembly, uh, which was an uh, you know that these days is the question why wouldn't one have used web i can think of a million reasons myself but go ahead you launch it oh yes all right. Well, let me let me give you a rundown of uh, a few of the current projects that run Python in some sense in the browser. Uh, so this is I, I, I will miss a couple here, but broadly of the popular ones, uh, there is so there is one called Brython, B R Y T H O N, browser Python, and this project uh, focuses on. 
basically replacing JavaScript, allowing you to write Python instead of JavaScript in an otherwise traditional web application. So you can do, you can include like Brython.js in your code, and then you can have like script lang equals text, text slash Python, and it refer to .py files or write Python inline in your HTML. And there's a whole bunch of obviously built-in stuff for, you know, JavaScript DOM node interop in it. And it's, it's really quite cool. Uh, but it's very much targeted at the, you are already building a web, web application. You already are using all the HTML and CSS and all that stuff. And you would just like to swap out Python. So swap out JavaScript for Python. And this, this necessarily has some problems, obviously. Uh, it, because actually, and not to get on too much of a hobby horse from the last episode, but I don't actually have much against JavaScript as a language. Uh, the thing that makes programming the web such a pain in the rear is the fact that you have to coordinate this ballet of, you know, every piece of state in your program has to, like, come out of a database at one end, get munged into an object, get munged into JSON, pulled over REST endpoint, comes into, like, some JavaScript object, which gets translated, it has its own methods and attributes, and then you have to go and template or somehow other translate that into HTML DOM, and then you like you use CSS, which is a whole other language to style that into pixels. And just there's an awful lot of complexity going on there. And if you just swap JavaScript out for Python in that stack, you haven't actually solved any of those problems. And in many ways, you've made it worse because none of the answers on Stack Overflow will actually help you uh, because they're all assuming you're using these JavaScript frameworks from Python, from JavaScript. So Bryson is really cool as a piece of technology, but it is very much like staying within that web application paradigm. And so I'm going to contrast this with Anvil, whose goal is... Uh, this is a silly place. Let's basically replace all of this and make it all Python. You know, no REST calls, just Python function calls. Uh, no HTML and CSS, uh, just you know, Python objects for your UI. Uh, whereas Python is very much the opposite end of that spectrum, which let's just swap this out. There's a similar project called Transcript, which is a kind of a more modern web equivalent of that. Because these days, you don't actually just write your JavaScript and load it straight into your HTML. You know, you've got some kind of front-end build chain, your Webpack, your Minifier, your what bundler, what have you. Uh, and uh, Transcript is kind of in that mold. So it's an ahead-of-time compiler. You point it at a bunch of .py files and... Uh, it will then compile those into a bunch of .js files or into one .js file, depending on its output options. I can't remember whether it has its own bundler or whether you feed it into a bundler. Um, again, it's like part of this front-end build chain thing. And that's really cool. It does ahead of time. It loads the JavaScript in your browser. The user of your web application never even knows you originally wrote it in Python. Well, Python-ish. Because the trade-off transcript makes is... Okay, Python is very different to JavaScript uh, it, in a bunch of subtle ways, like the ways that the object properties work are different to JavaScript. And Transcript sort of waves its hands and goes, close enough. And what that means, if you write like a.x equals hello in Python, it will generate the JavaScript a.x equals hello, which is obviously it's nice and fast when you execute in the browser. Um, it is very much makes it very easy to interop with interoperate with JavaScript libraries because you can use them very idiomatically. 
but of course it will have like the scoping semantics it will have the property semantics of javascript rather than of python and you end up in this situation where where you're neither fish nor fowl so you've gained the performance but you've lost like you've lost even more stack overflow compatibility because your code isn't quite behaving like python and it's not quite behaving like javascript either <laughs> the best of but both in exchange, worlds <laughs> but in exchange for which you've got quite idiomatic quite fast uh, you know, it will optimize well it will pack down well javascript code that's generated ahead of time as as something that looks more like a modern web application build process so like these are all trade-offs and that's the set of trade-offs that transcripts well, and once, once again just like the other uh, like uh the other one that you mentioned yeah. you're still in the world of html and css exactly right? yes and and that would be true also if if i'm uh, presumably somebody's done it in web assembly once again you end up really thinking web you know WebAssembly doesn't relieve you of thinking about HTML CSS. It just says I can if I write in code, I can write in whatever language I choose. Exactly. Which is yeah, which is why. So Sculpt Sculpt is a really cool project, but uh this is why, you know, the Anvil is this whole thing that is around it in order to attempt to deliver that answer. Which is a fascinating point because, you know, um, I mean, re- when I look at these things, it, uh, like you, you know, I mean, I, JavaScript wasn't my first language, uh, but I'm perfectly, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't my second or, fi- or wasn't my 10th, but it was, uh, <coughs> but I'm pretty comfortable with it, uh, you know, and swapping languages isn't the, isn't my stumbling block, but it is for a lot of people. So I understand why people want to say, I don't want to learn that JavaScript thing. I want to stay home in my, in my comfort zone. Uh, but you're, you're saying, no, we want, we really want to get it. We really want to keep you comfortable. Uh, we're going to insulate you, not from the language, but we're going to insulate you from everything. And that's fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, again, Insulation, of course, has its own uh, abstraction problems, and we can go deep into that, and we already did, so I'll refer you to the previous episode on that one. But uh, um, it's almost like there are two ways of approaching this. Like, There's the beginner version, which is, uh, I've already learned one programming language. The concept of learning a new one is like big and difficult and scary and is, is going to be a big lump for me to get over. And then there's the kind of senior, like, oh, gosh, yeah, this is my 10th language. I can totally pick up a new programming language, but... In the previous like nine languages I've learned, I've got a sense of design, and this weird like mousetrap contraption with all these different components moving and interacting with each other uh, looks crazy to me. And so then you'd also look, you know, this is like so. There's there's an appeal to the junior and appeal to the senior in simplifying it. Um, but but either way, yeah, that that is the crucial difference. Of course, I suppose. It is worth mentioning here that uh, Python is not just used as an, as an application development language. Uh, it is, of course, extremely popular in data science. And those folks spend a lot of their time in things like Jupyter Notebooks. And there's actually, believe it or not, there's a totally in-browser version of this. So it's called Pyodide. Uh, and it was originally a Mozilla project. I think it's now like spun out into its own thing. Uh, and it does use WebAssembly. So what it does, and this is the hold on to your hats, this is the crazy thing. It takes a Python interpreter, a full like C Python, the reference Python interpreter, and a whole bunch of classic data science libraries, and then it compiles them all to WASM. And then you open a web page and it, it downloads and runs this huge thing all in WASM. And then the interface it presents you with is a notebook. It's like a Jupyter kernel, uh, but it's all running completely front-end, completely in the web browser. And of course, like, this is a completely different set of trade-offs. Like, 
the WASM is huge, takes ages to, ages to download, ages to parse. You absolutely could not use this approach for a full-on, you know, uh, like a, an application where you expect the page to become responsive in a, in a few milliseconds and, you know, uh, switch pages like nobody's business. But for a data science workflow, that's, you know, that's kind of okay. I, I'm okay with my environment taking a little while to load if I can then do some data analysis that's, you know, I'm going to be interacting with this page for the next couple of hours. Um, so, like, th that's currently, if you look at, like, the, the Python in the browser space, if you think about the WASM stuff, that's mostly in, uh, that's mostly in, like, Pyodide and derivative projects. Whereas all the compilers that are out there that are really focused on application development, they tend to target JavaScript because most of the time what your code is doing anyway is driving stuff on the page. And actually, being in WebAssembly doesn't particularly help you with that. Right. Uh, so you might as well be in JavaScript where you can pick these objects up and swing them around. Yeah, not, a lot of people don't quite get that last point. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to make the page jump, uh, that's not what WebAssembly is good at. And um, mm -hmm. things like Blazor that are trying to do that for C Sharp, that's, that's, the, um, that's their weakness, um, the one that they're trying to overcome. Again, I like I'd hats off to the Blazor team, and I said this last time. It's a cool piece of technology. It, it's it's sort of transcripty. It's like it's this ahead of time thing that's going to compile. It it swaps out JavaScript for C sharp or insert your favorite .NET language here, but it's you know it's not fundamentally rearchitecting the web. It is like it's it's using WebAssembly, using a bunch of really cool to compile the technology, and like I'm. From Cambridge, Microsoft Research next door, like a, a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of really cool compiler te technology happens in the .NET space, but it's you know fundamentally not sort of changing the game. It's in that like swap one language out for the other space. Hey, are you building apps in React, Angular, Node, or some other framework? Well, with NX, you can build your full stack apps in a shared mono repo, integrate with modern tools, and reinforce best practices. You'll get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier that will simplify your workflow. NX also helps you simplify the relationships between applications and shared libraries to make it easier to share more code and develop more consistently across teams. And the best part is you'll build higher quality apps and spend less time on configuration. So visit nx.dev to get Narwhal's popular open source toolkit for monorepo development today. So this is cool. This has given us a chance to, to really kind of talk about a number of the different building blocks. But I know that you have like a, a specific story that you want to tell about like how you fit all this together in a, in a really cool way. All right. I, I should say up front, of course, the way, the way we've put it together that I'm most proud of is the Anvil runtime itself when you're running your applications. But I really wanted to talk about how we actually built used this to build an autocompleter because the Anvil editor is like it's an in-browser IDE. And what that means is, you know, it's it's a code editor you want autocompletion. Uh, but of course, you're in the browser and you don't really, if you're using an online service, you don't really have time to every time you hit the tab key to send all of your source code back to some server, parse it, get some autocompletions from like, you know, there are libraries, there's like the uh, the language server protocol, there's things like Jedi autocompletion in Python and then send it back to the browser to render. You just like, 
if you think about the number of milliseconds between keystrokes and the number of milliseconds though that packet has to get from New York to London, uh, it, it's just, there's just not enough time, uh, even assuming the parsing was instant. So we had to build one ourselves in JavaScript, and conveniently, we had a Python to JavaScript compiler just lying around the place because we were using it in the Anvil runtime. And so what we did is we ripped Sculpt apart and used like the front half of it to build the Anvil autocompleter. So a little bit of a digression into how a compiler works. So when you feed some code into a compiler, roughly what will happen is you know, it starts out as a string, right? Just a sequence of characters. Your compiler will then uh, throw that through a parser, uh, which is a, a, a program that will take that string, walk through it character by character, and sort of assemble it into a tree of things that make more sense in the language you're parsing into. Now, uh, Python actually has a has a you know has a defined grammar, uh, and actually, as aside, there are really cool tools called parser generators. So you can feed like the grammar for any programming language in, and it will emit a program that will parse any string into. Uh, into a tree of like those grammar objects, which is awesome. Uh, anyway, the, the tree that you end up with is called an abstract syntax tree. And that's got, so you've got like a node labeled function definition. And, you know, it will have some nodes for the arguments, you know, what names your, the arguments to your function are. And then it will have a list of uh, inside nodes, one for each statement in the function. And then, you know, there might be a, a node for an if statement, and then that'll have an expression, which is the you know the, the thing you're the boolean value you're switching on, and then a list of things to do in the if side, and then a list of things to do in the else side, and so on. So it, it's a tree that represents your program in you know in, in in the shape of your program rather than the shape of the text. And of course, that sculpt then uh, has a compiler that will grovel over this walk over it spitting out javascript to do what each thing does so you know it'll walk over the the if known it'll spit out the javascript for uh evaluate this expression and then if that's true then jump here else jump there uh but for an autocompleter all you need is the ast uh, by the way if you're already a python programmer you can you can get access to python's uh own parser with the ast module import ast and you can you can try this yourself you can feed it a string of python code and you can get out a tree of python objects that represents the ast uh so if you have a if you have any compiler interpreter it has one of these inside it and so we used sculpts so what we do is if you are using the Anvil editor and you hit like the tab key, we we replace wherever your cursor is with a magic symbol that in you know says cursor, uh, and then we feed the contents of the editor into the sculpt parser, and out comes an AST. And then you can walk over that AST, you know, from 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 the module down, just recursively walk it down and building up your your idea of the world. So you know, as you walk past a you know x equals five, you you can make a little note. Well, there's a variable called x in this scope, and it's of type integer. And you know, there's a function definition here. Well, okay, well we're inside here. Well, we have some variables named after the function arguments in this scope. Uh, you know, we walk over a class definition. Well, now we know we have this class. And we know what methods it has, and so if we instantiate it later, we'll know what attributes it, that that instance will have. And you can build up, it, symbolic execution is the term usually used for this kind of thing. You build up a kind of model. You don't execute the program, but you build up a model of what it will do when it's executed. 
And by the time your your walker sort of runs across the node that is the you know magic underscore cursor variable name, well, at that point, you know quite a lot about the world. You know all the variables that are in scope. Uh, or if the cursor symbol directly follows, you know, x dot, well, you, you probably know what type of variable x is, and so you know what attributes are available on that object instance. And then you you pop up your little box and you offer, you know, you offer here are all the autocompletions. And uh, so all you need is the front half of a compiler and a bit of walking logic to do this. And because we were building our own, that meant we could do all sorts of really cool things because you know, we can we can follow through uh, the expressions in your language. So let's say you're doing a, a very typical thing with Anvil, which is to say that you've uh, you're you're fetching some rows from the date from the Anvil's built-in database, and then you're going to display them on your user interface. Well, that code will look like you know, so rows equals Anvil.server.call and then some function. Well, because we're writing the autocompleter ourselves, we know that Anvil.server.call is a special is a special function that goes and calls something on the server. And because our autocompleter has already parsed the, the your server-side code, because it's all one program, it's not like it's you know some other a, you know, API project running somewhere else. We we know where we've parsed that function, we know what type it returns, we know it returns a, a list of you know rows from this database. And then okay, you want to loop over it for row in rows. Well, that's fine. We we've tagged that type, we know what type you get if you iterate iterate over. A list of rows from that database. You get each instance is a row from that database, and now you can go, you know, print row and their and their left bracket. Well, we know arbitrary things about types. There's no reason we can't know, you know, what columns are in this database. Oh, sorry, in this particular database table, and we know it, this is a row from that table. So when you hit the, you know, left square bracket key, we can offer you as an autocompletion all of the columns that are in that database table. And so you can sort of you can follow through the program working out. You don't need to execute it to know that that variable is of this type, and the things you might want to put in that square brackets are just all the column names in that database. And likewise, we can inject knowledge of all the things you've dragged and dropped with your designer. So when you go, you know, you want to see the text that's in the text box, you go self dot. Well, it knows there's a there's a text box there, so it'll offer you text box one as a completion. You hit dot after that. Well, it knows that text boxes have a text property and a, a line property and a font size property and so on. And you can just uh, you can choose one. And all this is just there to to essentially help you write the correct line of code. Maybe not the first yeah. time, but like you, you, you're not stuck guessing. Like sometimes with JavaScript, you're like, okay, bracket. All right, well, what what's that parameter name I need to put in there or whatever? So yeah. You know, it right. serves I that mean, need. We do it by adding typing to it, right? Either JS doc or well, or but again, even if you're if you've added typing to it, your you know, your editor will be doing something very similar. It will be feeding your code into a parser, yep. and that parser, like that parser, is going to have to infer some stuff and TypeScript some of the stuff. Like it will be able to pull straight out of the AST because you've put some typing information on that, you know, on that function. It knows what value, what type it returns. Obviously, in Python, especially if you're, if you're not using any of the typing annotations, then yes, we have to like walk through and parse that function. Like we we see the return statement and we see you know what you were returning. And we went ah, this thing returns a list of rows from that database. Right. Type uh, it's something like yeah. Yeah. but yeah, we have to infer the type. Yeah, we don't do Handley Milner or anything clever. We just do the 
the but simple stuff it's re- remarkably effective <laughs> yes uh, it is but you can you can do um you you can do type inference like that but if it's declared like it is in something like typescript that's fine still what you it's still the same basic principle you feed the thing into a parser you look at the ast if there is a type declared on that function, well, you can just pull that type off the AST. You can go look at the definition of that type, which will also, you know, you will have found by groveling over the AST, and that will tell you what attributes are available on that type. It sounds simple, and it is simple, but it's part of the real magic of, like, programs deconstructing other programs or programs that write other programs are, I think, one of the most inherently cool things in all of computing. Yeah, I don't think it sounds simple. (laughs) <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But it sounds accessible, particularly. So, are you like for for? There are a lot of people who are, for whom they're learning uh, programming, and Python is the lang- is often the language that they're taught with. And we chose they, it for a reason. And um, it's and are they? I wonder if they could see what you're doing because it would be a great way to learn how languages work by seeing how you're building your AST and then walking over it. I mean, and presumably this is open source. And so some, some, somebody in the school who was teaching Python could maybe, uh, I'm just imagining leverage this to help their students get onto the next level of learning about how programming languages work. I am on board with that plan as a teaching plan. I I, I used to do a bunch of teaching at the university here. And this was one of my favorite things to to talk about. Like, hmm, Programming language, how programming languages, how do they work? Unfortunately, I have some bad news on the open source front, which is that although the Anvil runtime is open source, so the actual web framework itself, you can you know you can just pip install the the framework support, launch a standalone server, it all works. The editor itself is uh, is something it's freely available at Anvil.works, but it you can't look inside and see how our autocompleter works. I'm sorry, but <laughs> if you are a teacher and you want to do this kind of teaching about about parsing and about languages. Again, the Python AST module is great for this because, like, once you've got people like in a basic, uh, using enough Python that they can you know, feed their text into the AST uh, module without wondering what on earth is going on, uh, it, it really does. I, I think that more languages should expose their guts like this. So, I mean. Side note: I'm I'm a bit I'm a big Lisp Lisp head. If you go look at the uh, Anvil uh, framework Git repository, you'll discover a lot of the backends written in Clojure. Um, I really love the stuff, and one of the things I love about it is that it sort of hangs its guts out in there. You're writing in. If you've never used Lisp before, I'm not going to try and explain it all, but it's basically like you write the AST directly, and that is your source code. It requires very little parsing to turn into a tree, and that allows you to do really cool things. Um, but like, even if you're not going to go that far, go that extreme, put on your your funny hat and, and write Lisp, uh, just having uh, Python's ability to, by having the AST module, to let you explore that process yourself is really, really cool. So yes, absolutely. If I were teaching this stuff, I would be using the Python AST module to say, like, here is your program. Look at how the computer takes it apart. Look at how we could go about executing it bit by bit, step by step. And ladies and gentlemen, this is how a Python interpreter works. Well, Rev, this is something that we could keep going on for hours. I mean, it's just, it's it's incredible to, to see how everything is glued together to... Like, like you're describing, basically re-engineer the web. Um, that's incredible and awesome. And then just to have the compiler working as it is through a language that most people, I don't want to say most people, because there's, there's 
millions of, of Python developers, but people who are more familiar with JavaScript, like this is probably just very, you know, just very interesting at, at, at least to it. So thank you so much for, for coming yeah. on. I'm not sure how many of them realize how big Python is in, in the world that they're not walking in. Um, I mean, like, no, yeah, everybody sort of sees around where they are. Absolutely. It's like, <laughs> right. if you're in the web, you're probably using JavaScript. If you're not, you're probably using Python. Like, I, I know that that's like, that's a big generalization, but it is much truer than you would think. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, these people deserve to be able to put together applications too. Like, just because you are a data scientist or you're an embedded engineer, like, there is no reason you shouldn't be able to put to get, together a UI. And these days, a UI means a web app. Right. And, and absolutely. And if you're giving them the ability to use what they, because they've got limited time, like all of us, and if you're giving them the, uh, th these people, uh, this is why I've always loved Excel too, to be honest, I mean, which is the most popular <laughs> oh, yeah. programming language in the world, right? It, it enabled, you know, it enabled people who didn't have any programming ability to do amazing things because they knew what they were doing and they had a really good reason for doing things and and um, uh, I I salute it and so the, uh, there's a lot of people doing amazing things in Python and I salute this. To to wrap things up a little bit, Ward, what would you leave us as a, as your final thought for the week? Well, I think I just dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so too. Uh, you know, I mean, because uh, as much as I think the whole world should be all about me and what I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm willing to recognize. I ain't no data scientist and I'm not over there, but I run into those people and they have so much to tell me about what they're doing, but they are stuck in doing things that they ought to be able to do, want to be able to do, they, and they can't do it because the tools aren't available to them. And they shouldn't need me to help them cross that bridge. They should just be able to do it. And i that's what I'm getting out of this. And, and I think having the right tools for the right job is, is so important. Like, my wife is, is brilliant. She's just not a computer person, right? And so we're talking about Excel, and I was doing some stuff for taxes, and I put together a pivot table, which is really simple to do in Excel. And her mind was blown. She's just like, oh my gosh, I can see all these different ways of looking at numbers and sorting and filtering and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it's just having that technology available that suits where you're at and what your needs are is, is huge. And for Python developers, this is exactly it. So Meredith, you, you get the last word this week. What, what about you? I think my last word is going to be to remember that the thing you just said goes both ways. That much as a data scientist is not, your typical data scientist at least, uh, does not have that full stack web app experience. Like an embedded engineer is looking at us with all our, you know, huge fancy dynamic languages going on and would say, yeah, I mean, that's all very well, but like your lights literally wouldn't come on when you push the button <laughs> if there weren't people who knew intimately like the register file of the machine they were working on. So when you say like, the people who whose specialisms are different we are really talking about different not whether they are more or less computer people it's what have they spent their lives uh becoming experts in and how can we make sure that whatever they have chosen for that we are not putting unnecessary barriers between them and being able to use the best application delivery and deployment environment in the world, which is the web. Absolutely. 
Again, thank you for joining us yet a second time. We're going to have to make it a third and a fourth, I'm, I'm sure. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's been lovely as always. Absolutely. I want to say thanks to, to all of our sponsors and all of our listeners. And we will be seeing you soon here again on WebRush. Rush.